0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. Today I'm sharing my conversation with Dr. Julie Pullen, one of the great scientific minds when it comes to climate, weather, and water. She's an oceanographer and a meteorologist and has held leadership positions in government, nonprofit, academia, and the private sector. Most recently, Julie became the partner at Propeller, a new venture capital firm investing in transformational leaders at the earliest stages of ocean climate innovation. And a big thank you from us to Julie, because she has been a champion and supporter of New Atlantis from its earliest days. And that is why, among so many other reasons, Julie, I am so excited to talk mm-hmm. to you today. Great to see you. So happy to be here. Yeah, you are You are a hero to many, including lots of us over here at New Atlantis. So I'm really, really excited to tell your story from the past and also talk about what you're working on now. So let's just start to give some context for you because your resume can fill up a book. Um, As I said, you've worked in academia and government, et cetera, and this place where climate meets ocean. So just tell me a little bit about how you got interested in that.
1: You know, I'd been long fascinated by fluid flows, just going back to my childhood. And it really kind of all came together for me when I focused at what looking back is kind of an early age on chaotic, nonlinear, complex systems. And I came at that, my portal into that realm was this crazy, bizarre scientist who was an evolutionary biologist named Stuart Kaufman, who's the inspiration for the character in Jurassic Park, the Jeff Goldblum character, the life will find a way. Uh huh. And I studied with him at the early, early days of the Santa Fe Institute, which is a complex systems think tank. And that was when I was an undergrad and that just changed my whole life. I went and did a period of study in applied mathematics as a result of that, and I just got deeper into complex systems, and the most complex system of all is the Earth system, and started applying those tools to the different realms of the Earth system, beginning with the oceans, which felt, even back at that time when I was doing my PhD, just mysterious and incomprehensible on so many levels. And I specialized over time in how the ocean and atmosphere communicate with each other and exchange information and how we represent those processes in our models. So earth system modeling. And I really keyed in on like what we need to do in order to make the representations in those models more accurate. And so I focused my career in academia on Putting together observational programs of the Earth system, we go out with aircraft looking at clouds and how they interact with the sea surface and aerosols, putting out observational platforms in the Pacific uh, in the Philippines, where I did my fulbright as a as a visiting professor about five years ago.
0: Can you go into that a little bit? What do you mean by observational platforms?
1: so there's lots of different ways to gather information about how the Earth system is unfolding. And so we have lots of modalities. We have satellite data, which is great looking at large areas, not so great at super high resolution. And it's really surface characteristics that it's measuring. If you want to like get into the full depth of the atmosphere, or the full depth of the ocean and understand more detailed parameters, like how those fluids are mixing. You need to do really intensive field campaigns. And so the one I was referencing in the atmosphere, we would send aircraft out. We based it out of the Azores, which are these really fetching islands in the North Atlantic and we had a monitoring station on on one of the nine islands and we integrated all these observations of like what's actually happening in the clouds how are they forming how are patterns in the sea surface temperature influencing when where and how the clouds form and some of those feedback processes so that's an example and really you know i, I i've had this affinity for these island environments largely because they're super challenging for Earth system models. You know, they get variations on really small scales and things like, one of my favorite islands is the island of Madeira, also in the North Atlantic, also an uh, autonomous um, region of Portugal. And you would have like practically desert environment. And then a few kilometers away, it's tropical. And then you start climbing the mountain and there's there's ice on top. You know, it's like these very very, very large gradients in surface features. And and that's not even taking account of the ocean, which is this huge coastal gradient. I really wanted the Earth system models and the weather and ocean forecast models I was working on to just do a better job. So one way is to just gather more detailed information and then feed that back to the models, either through improving how we represent the processes or just direct assimilation of the data. And I've done both. But this time in the Philippines was really transformative for me. So I was building a large field program involving a lot of different government agencies, both based here in the U.S., but also um, a number of international agencies and, and countries represented. And I was living in the Philippines. I was uh, I was teaching tropical meteorology to graduate students at the University of the Philippines. And I was attending this field site in the, the main island, the north of Luzon. And that area kept on getting inundated by typhoons and seeing the resilience of the people in the face of climate impacts like that, including the heat, really changed the focus of my, of my life. And I, I came back from that experience wanting to be more directly involved in climate solutions and how, how we get ourselves out of this. And um, I started by just up and leaving academia I joined an early stage startup to lead their products, producing climate risk information. I was keen to see if, you know, getting more granular information about the impacts that a business would face, whether that's flooding, heat waves, drought, wildfires, whether that granular information could act as a, a lever, this sort of, oh no moment where the leadership of the company is that we would be selling these products to would just go, wait a minute, hang on. <laughs> like, that's, not, that's not something we can endure. That's not sustainable. And use that as a, an impetus or catalyst to drive climate action, you know, to mm-hmm. really agitate for change at a policy level. And that's been happening to some extent. You know, you see things like the net zero emissions targets by companies, net zero by 2050, the more granular science-based targets initiative to say, well, let's not wait till 2050. Let's start doing something, you know, now and setting more ambitious targets leading up to 2050. And yet it didn't feel like it was happening fast enough. Like there's just more to do. And so I oriented, but just much more directly into climate solutions on the investing side of it, like just saying, okay, let's cast our net widely. We're the places we can have the biggest impact in terms of designing climate solutions? And I went back to my home in the oceans, which was you know, where, where I did my PhD is in ocean science and came together with, with a team that was really committed to centering the oceans in in the climate solution space. And teaming up with ocean science institutions, starting with the leading one on the planet, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and then just catalyzing a plethora of solutions in the ocean space and ways that we can um, do more on the, on the climate front, and really utilize the power and scale and breadth and depth of the oceans in that really important endeavor. So here I am,
0: <laughs> it's, and and thank. God for the world that you are where you are right now and putting all this action into, you know, making it all happen. But before we get into some of the solutions that you're seeing, cause I'm really interested in hearing, cause you're going to be at the forefront of this and seeing what some of the solutions out there. I want to talk a little bit about how the ocean and the atmosphere interact.
1: Yeah. Sort of dreamy in some ways because <laughs> you have this interface fluids of two different vastly different densities moving past each other and so the ways that they exchange information it's through the heat like the surfaces that they expose to each other and they have different temperatures and changes in temperature happen quite rapidly for the air but much slower for the ocean And there's mixing processes in both the air and the ocean that causes, in the case of the ocean, fresher water to be exposed up to the surface of the atmosphere. Also, when it rains you get a fresher layer of water on the ocean, and that can serve actually as a cap on the ocean that is able to retain more heat and and inhibits more mixing in the ocean. So some of these processes like rain can actually change temperatures in the ocean. And the actual physical process of the air and water sort of flowing past each other can create friction and involve momentum exchange between those two fluids. And of course, you have these processes that are happening on small scales and then much larger scales. You know, El Nino is a, is an air-sea interaction process fundamentally. You have the monsoon circulation as like some giant, sea breeze really when you think about it and these are all driven by temperature differentials between the land and the sea so lots happening on this beautiful brilliant planet that we live on and let's keep it that way
0: <laughs> and i think a lot of people we we take for granted our weather and of course we hear about climate change and and, and have experienced climate change but i think many of us have taken for granted the ocean's role in regulating the earth's temperature. And you've really spent a whole career thinking about that.
1: Yeah, it's so vital. So um, really the oceans have been buffering the worst effects of climate change for us. They've absorbed 30% of the CO2 emissions and the vast majority of, of the heat is actually being retained by the ocean. It's not in the atmosphere um, that's being wrought by these changes. And so you know, one of the things I, I I focus a lot on these days is something that's really, you know, palpable to understand, which is that we talk about, I mentioned my background in complex systems. And um, one of the concepts that comes out of that work is that there can be points in time and space that are like profound state shifts for the system. Some people call them tipping points where the behavior of the system just changes dramatically. and There's a growing understanding that we face a number of these Earth system tipping points. Here's the insight, though, is that the near-term tipping points for our Earth system are all localized in our oceans. And when I when I say near-term, I mean in that as we we reach 1.5 degrees C threshold, which could happen as soon as the early 2030s on the trajectory that we're on. So beyond 1.5 degrees C these ocean climate tipping points are in play. And those are the loss of the coral reefs. They're the loss of the polar ice. And they're really profound shifts in the circulations in the ocean. So these are this, this vast system of currents that transport heat from the equator to the poles, and then essentially regenerate the water at the poles. So in that subduction process where this deep water is renewed and it sinks at the poles, what we're coming to learn is that there's really an imminent risk of that total shutdown of that that heat transport system of our oceans. And that could be as soon as 2040, we could have, or 2050, the 2040s and 50s, A 40% shutdown of that circulation in the Southern Ocean. So at the South Pole region, we could see a profound shift in our ocean's ability to uh, circulate and address the heat that it's been absorbing.
0: Can you dive a little deeper to explain how the warming ocean stops this circulation?
1: Yeah. So at both poles, as the ice melts, that creates fresher water, And we talked about how that fresh water can act as a cap um, on the system, Mm -hmm. like when it comes in through rain on the top of the ocean. Well, it's a similar process when the ice melts, but you get sort of the gushing of this fresh water. And what that does is it produces a cap of lower density water that prevents the Deeper submergence because saltier water is denser than fresh water. So that whole system relies on there being enough dense water that's able to sink. But as the poles melt, you just end up with more fresh water, not mm. more dense, salty water. So that's the process and it's accelerating over time. It's getting worse over time, not better. And as scientists, we'd focused a lot on the North Atlantic and you might've heard of this, the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation being at risk. So that's that sort of North Atlantic branch of this big, vast, like octopus-like circulation system. And that's actually at risk as well, but the time horizon is a little bit farther out. It's like, by 2100, there would be a 40% shutdown in the North Atlantic by best estimates on the path that we're on. Um, whereas, uh, like I said, for the Southern Ocean, it could be by 2050, we have a 40% shutdown in that portion of the submergence or overturning circulation.
0: And so just to summarize this again, then this circulation helps regulate the temperature of the earth. which It does. directly. And here's affects- what else it does.
1: Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's our climate buffer. So here's a couple other things to bear in mind is as the oceans warm, they hold less gas. So CO2 could potentially be on a certain threshold that was not quite understood, could start bubbling out of the oceans instead of being absorbed by the oceans. And this process of this deep submergence that we talked about, that process is the deep ventilation of the ocean. It's the ventilation of the deeper water. So that's how the deep ocean gets oxygen. The waters are in touch, in contact. We talked about the air-sea exchange. They're in contact with the atmosphere at the poles. And then that deep submergence carries that oxygenated water on the circuitous path around uh, the full ocean. So it, it also creates a risk for ocean creatures, as well as altering through some of the similar pathways, the ability of the ocean to sequester CO2.
0: Um, I want to bring up then, this perfect timing, the article that you wrote for Scientific American. I'll read the title of it. Marine oxygen levels are the next great casualty of climate change. Indeed they
1: are. And we, we need to be doing more to appreciate that and to really think about what's in that solution space.
0: Okay, yeah. tell us more. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> <Is> That's <too> stupid <laughs> for you. <laughs> we wrote that article because we were joining a chorus of scientists, largely based in Europe, who've been really working to to get more observations of the oxygen in, in the oceans. And the story of, of of oxygen on our planet is a fascinating one. So a brief digression, which is that, about two and a half billion years ago, halfway through the the history of our planet, phytoplankton started oxygenating the planet. And so it was, they were the original oxygenators. It was the great oxygenation event. They created our atmosphere, provided protections as well from cosmic rays and other things that um, come from outer space and really changed the fate of our whole planet. And so these phytoplankton are the original photosynthesizers. They're microalgae. They're everywhere in the oceans. And not only is climate change and the, and the and warming temperatures and microplastics and other threats really messing with their environment, it's really hard to get a handle on how much phytoplankton populations have changed. But there are some estimates that say over the past half century, there's been a reduction about 40% in phytoplankton population. Now that layers onto, that's on the production side of oxygen. And of course we have terrestrial sources of oxygen. So we're not in in any immediate danger ourselves of running out of oxygen, but the ocean creatures are. And so that layers onto the other sources of threat to oxygen, which is that warmer waters as as the temperatures rise in the oceans, hold less oxygen. And we're all becoming familiar with these, uh, marine heat waves that are starting to take hold in the ocean. Like when I started out in oceanography, we didn't even have a term for marine heat waves. And now we we see them in every basin multiple times. They're getting longer, more frequent, and more extreme. So the, the analog is, is heat waves on land. And we're seeing them now in the ocean. And we're also starting to see deoxygenation events. So these are similar to marine heat waves, just these areas that become seized by low oxygen conditions. And it leaves the creatures gasping for breath. So you get not just this sort of overall change in the in the oxygen state. But you're also getting these episodic events of low oxygen that are are occurring more frequently in our oceans, and these have profound implications for for the ocean creatures. So, there's one other factor at play here, which is is we talked about the things that can prevent the ocean from mixing more, and it turns out that the warmer temperatures um, create more of a, a layered ocean that can prevent the mixing and the, the sort of um, stronger circulation of oxygen through the ocean. So there's some physical factors, some chemical factors, and then the biological factor of reduced phytoplankton that are really leading to this crisis in oxygen in our oceans.
0: And what's crazy is you talk about the effects on the creatures in the ocean, but then the ripple effect on the rest of the planet and on human beings as well. So that's just the beginning.
1: Yeah, it's just the beginning. You know, I think we um underestimate our reliance on on our oceans. And I, I fear that we may do that at our peril. It might be it, we might it might be only in retrospect that we realize um what's at stake. And I feel that we also about the the climate tipping points in the ocean. We may realize only in the real view mirror as one of my mentors, Steve Schneider, uh, a, a climate scientist from, from Stanford who's no longer with us, but it was an incredible mind and voice for climate action and climate science. It's what drives me that we don't wake up and realize we could have and should have done more.
0: You tell this story, I, I've heard you tell it before, Julie, about um, your husband, who your beloved husband, who sadly passed away. But while in the hospital with him, you had this realization that attached how humans live with how our ocean is, that I think really brings it home for people. If you wouldn't mind sharing it.
1: Sure. Yeah. I was able to to probe a little more, sort of a, a systems way of thinking. And it, it was a, a source of I guess like reprieve for me uh in the hospital with him. We we spent long days in the ICU as as he was in retrospect realized, slowly succumbing to um, sepsis. Uh, the system's part of this is that as a source of solace, I would talk to the nurses and doctors about what was actually happening in in his body. And I started to realize that there was this this connection between what was happening in his body, which is that their bacteria had been released into his blood and they were um, secreting CO2 and it was accumulating in his his body. You know, in my mind, it connected with with the CO two poisoning that's happening in our oceans, and what was actually imperiling his body. He was he was on oxygen in the hospital for most of his his time. Was that this really interesting relationship between CO two and oxygen, and that CO two building up in in the body imperils the oxygen um, that we bring into our bodies. And it's also, there's so many interesting things about the human body that have parallels in our system. But one, another one is that as part of that, those learnings, I came to understand that when we're born as babies out of the fluid filled womb of our mothers, the signal to take our first gasping breath on this planet is CO2 accumulation in our bodies. As babies, like that's the signal to take our first breath, and it's also, you know, it, it can also be a, a profound threat to the body as well when you have an um, an overproduction of CO2, as I discovered in my husband's um, situation. So that started me on a journey to understand more deeply of what was happening to our Earth system and to be able to feel like. We have done everything that we can to not be in the situation of looking back and wish that we had done more to prevent the loss of something that we love. And it's the loss of something that we love that we can never get back that I want to do everything possible to not have happen to us.
0: What do you think we need to be measuring that we're not already? Because the thing about the ocean is we can't see what's going on down there. And that's why I think it's so easy for people to, to minimize how important the ocean is to us. We can't see all the creatures. We don't see all of the important ecosystem services that they provide for us. And yet we need to. People need to understand how important it is to, to take care of our ocean, to your point. What can we be putting out there? What measurements, what stories, what can we be doing? So I think the story of
1: oxygen is one that people can connect with. Like it's what it creates for us and the vitality that it brings to, um, to life. We need more sustained measurements of oxygen. There's a whole whole program of measurements. Um, there are these really cool Argo floats in our ocean. So they, they go down and sort of drift amongst the ocean currents and then they surface and they send their information. It's a terrific program. It's a global program is surveying the ocean and there's a fairly new component of that program that's focused on the biogeochemistry of the ocean so now there's carbon and oxygen other parameters on some of these newer floats as well as a whole set of them that are surveying the very very deep parts of the ocean so that's really important information we just need a lot more of them we just need way more of them to your point about the connectedness of life you know the more sustained Studies of ecosystem functions, I think, is is really important, and the connectivity of life in the oceans. You know, I was I was talking with a coral scientist the other day from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and there's some you know staggering number of species that are incubated on coral reefs, and they all like find their niche within this ecosystem, and that's and, and fish thrive there, and so many creatures. Thrive there because of the environment that's created. And not all of them have even been catalogued as of yet. And yet, the loss of our coral reefs is the most common and predominant signal climate tipping point across all the climate models. Like, that's the enduring signal of what our greenhouse gas emissions are are being wrought on our planet is the loss of these these really precious vital ecosystems, coral reefs. And then looking beyond that and in larger parts of the open ocean, I have a colleague from Oregon State University who published a paper looking at the conditions in in our ocean across parameters like oxygen, CO2, pH, so that's ocean acidification, which is another uh, effect of climate change and as the oceans absorb more CO2 and change, it changes the acidity of the ocean. What they found is that the vast majority of our oceans are experiencing and will continue to experience extraordinarily novel conditions, a novel being defined as conditions they haven't experienced in the past 75 plus years. Mm. So, you know, You think about what is that, and that just gets worse over time. And what does that mean for marine protected areas, for instance? So you think that you're protecting a certain area because you want to sustain the life that's in that area. And yet what you're going to end up with is a whole different set of life and creatures that are going to be migrating into that area because that's another signal in the oceans is that the creatures are just going to, the ones that can move, the ones that aren't settled on the ocean bottom or the benthic area, they'll they'll move if they can. And they're going to move to areas that are less warm and that can, where they can find oxygen. So there's going to be a lot of creatures in the ocean on the move. And so what does it even mean to manage a marine protected area anymore when you, you know, you're you going to be end up ultimately with a whole different set of creatures? These are big questions.
0: But everything we do has a ripple effect going forward.
1: Yes, it really does. It's important to make palpable those examples, you know, that people can un- un- can understand what's, again, what's at stake. Yeah, it's important.
0: Julie, you've spent a, t- a lot of time making predictive models. How good do you think our models are right now for determining or predicting what's going to happen based on different factors changing? Yeah, the
1: climate models are, have been a really sustained community effort to, in, to improve them. And the fruits of that labor is the uh, IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the most recent report came out over the last year or so. And those use a set of models called the CMIP-6 or the sixth iteration of those models, which are coupled model intercomparison projects. It's all the you know large institutions that do climate modeling got together and said, "Okay, let's create you know standardized um, inputs and outputs, so we have a level arena for comparing these model outputs, and we just basically pool our the results and output from these climate models, so we can better understand the range of potential outcomes." It's a really powerful approach modality we call that also ensemble projections and yet we need to be doing way more like we need to be able to improve these models at a much faster pace and we need to also be able to make stronger projections on the near term horizon so i consider that that period of time out to 2035 where a lot of these ocean climate tipping points that we, we spoke about, or, you know, we have this vital period of time to make decisions. And if we, if we can get early warning signs about when some of these tipping points may be crossed, that can put us in a position to consider a broader range of actions. So this could include faster technology development around carbon dioxide removal, for instance. Or other types of responses to to the climate crisis, because we, we would come to understand that it's actually more pressing in very specific ways. I wonder sometimes that the climate crisis just doesn't feel a bit watered down to some people because there's no real strong, it's, there's no siren going right. off, you know yeah um, and I think these tipping points really are a siren to us if we can understand the timing and and the geographies that matter in the the complex earth system. So the reason i I, I describe it that way is because I'm really optimistic about machine learning, the most recent set of developments in the the transformer foundation model architectures that could really serve as a bridge for us between those longer decades long time scale projections that the climate models are really optimized for and these shorter term projections we call subseasonal to seasonal which is the couple weeks out to a year where those models they they run for shorter periods of time So they can represent much more detailed processes and they can do it uh, with much higher resolution. Whereas, you know, a lot of the climate models, they're a hundred kilometer resolution. And so I really believe that these foundation models or transformer models like um, a chat GPT, but for for climate can really serve to bridge those scales as the system can learn patterns that are occurring across these multiple scales or multi-scale patterns and start making projections about the future. Of course, they would have to be very carefully trained and there'd have to be um, supervision involved in gathering the highest quality data sets, so really curating the data sets. But there's a lot of promise in that direction.
0: But you've been in this field for so long. What are some of the great success stories that you've seen?
1: So from the perspective of science and climate science, I think the ability to make... Sustained progress on understanding our Earth system, the sustained progress to understand the connectivity between the different realms of the Earth system. I think that's that's just a, a success story. You know, it, it used to feel fragmented in terms of our disciplinary boundaries. Even in ocean science, you know, we specialize, so we have chemical oceanographers, biological oceanographers, physical oceanographers. We have marine geologists. We have um, people focused on ocean tech. I mean, we have we're, we're very specialized, and yet the ocean is just one large fluid. And so I think that that's a that's a success story of that how we represent the oceans to ourselves and to each other and to each other. Like, I think that's a that's a huge success story, and I think the integration of biological systems and biogeochemistry into how we think about the oceans as, as transforming the oceans. And, you know, really point out also the work of New Atlantis and the space around metagenomics and that really um, important interconnectivity of the, of the biology and to use, yes, the latest, you know, work in large language models to be able to go faster.
0: Now, what you're doing at Propeller, Metro Capital firm that you started, you get to see what's coming next at the cutting edge of ocean and climate. What are the solutions out there? Is there anything you can share with us that you're really excited about?
1: Um, oh, my goodness. This is such, um, it's such an important area. As I've entered into this space, I'm coming to see that that we're in the middle of what I'm terming a second wave of technologies. You know, the first wave was just kind of a first approach to think about climate solutions in the ocean. Maybe, you know, not quite optimized or, you know, not quite ready for prime time. And what we're seeing now are solutions that really work with the ocean system may be inspired by what biological or geological processes are doing in the ocean and just trying to speed up some of those processes in, in, a, in a natural way. And of course, you know, you have this whole spectrum from... Nature-based solutions like um, blue carbon, so restoring or protecting vital ecosystems like kelp forests and mangrove forests and seagrasses, who are the you know original carbon sequesters on our planet, and then you know processes that can mimic photosynthesis that draws down CO2 and creates oxygen, and I, I think some of those that really work with with the natural systems and just can help create efficiencies around some of those those processes are where some of the most interesting solutions are to be found right now.
0: And is there a lot happening in this field that you've seen?
1: Oh my gosh, so much innovation. Yes. Yes. You know, one of the things I enjoy the most about my work now is being able to engage with scientists. These are often senior scientists who have spent their whole careers going deep on some part of the, the ocean or the earth system. And they're ready to turn their attention to the solution side of things. You know, they've gotten all the accolades in their careers that they could possibly get. They've, you know, published more papers than they can count. And they really feel that we're at an inflection point. And they're great sources of creativity in the solution space, as are young people coming into the field who, you know, may not have constraints and how they think about the disciplines of the Earth system, or they may think differently about it, or they, you know, may enter into working as a glaciologist thinking about what is in the solution space here? How can we maintain, preserve, and even expand um, polar ice? And those are the people I gravitate towards and I really enjoy working with.
0: That's interesting, Julie. Do you think there's been historically uh, resistance from academia? It sounds like you've brought this up a couple of times, including a- about yourself, from academia, then jumping over to take all of that research to help find solutions. Does academia sometimes sit and swirl in a world of academia? Well, I think you know it's
1: partly related to the incentives. You know the way that academic systems are uh, set up. It rewards becoming very specialized and it rewards gathering a lot of data. I remember um, back a little while ago, maybe um, mid 2000s, I was involved uh, heavily with the Oceanography Society, which is one of the sponsors of the largest conference of oceanographers on the planet. It's called the Ocean Sciences Meeting. And I was one of the technical organizers of it, which meant that I was um, in a position to Identify key themes and topical areas to put attention on and to really help drive more attention on on research in these spaces, and among other things as in that particular service role. So one of the things I did was point out to to the media the areas that they should pay attention to at this this big ocean sciences meeting, over five thousand oceanographers getting together in one place as part of that, I started attending more of the climate related sessions and It was when more research was starting to come out around ocean acidification. And already it was obvious that there was something really bad going on. And I remember thinking, when are we going to know enough about this situation to act? And as scientists and academic scientists, we're just incentivized and encouraged to go out and build our research to, to get more funding, to write proposals, to just gather more and more and more data. And I think what I'm seeing among my colleagues is just this this sense of, you know, a life, a life beyond that or ways to contribute beyond that that are actually synergistic with you can still write papers, you can still do the research, but you can also think about how do I solve for this? And that's been that shift that's been really gratifying to see.
0: Last question before we leave. What's your favorite thing about the ocean?
1: I love how mesmerizing it is. My son's recently got certified for scuba diving and being able to share with them the environment of the coral reefs and that they have that experience before they disappear off our planet before we lose our coral reefs has been one of the most rewarding things and they love it it's their favorite thing and they want to go back and get more certifications and that just warms my heart i just i love being submerged
0: Dr. Julie Pullen, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for all of your support of New Atlantis. And I just look forward to getting to continue working with you. Same here. Thanks very much. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening today. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please follow us on Twitter. You can join our new Atlantis Labs conversation on Discord. Or if you have a comment about this particular episode, you can leave it on GoodPods. You can find all those links in our show description. See you next time.